Is anybody, uh, is this anybody's first Memorial Day in Spokane? Memorial Day weekend in Spokane? This is pretty much what you can expect every year. Kind of rainy, sorry. We always think that it's going to be better, but it generally is kind of like this. So I apologize about that on behalf of a longtime Spokane resident. Uh, hey, I'm glad that, that I'm here at the 11 o'clock service. Russ mentioned this, but um, you guys are way more involved than the 9 o'clock service, and I'm thankful for that. So way to go. Who's doing some barbecues today? Anybody going to a barbecue? Anybody going to the lake or to go to the river or be on a boat or anything? Some people on a boat? Okay. I'm on a boat. <laughs> Some couple people got that. Um, hey, so let's, uh, let's jump in. We're going to today be looking at uh, Nehemiah 2. We're going to look at the whole chapter. And uh, before we do that, I want to give a quick recap of what Russ spoke about last weekend. Russ um, kind of made the statement that, that we may have lost some of our wonder. As Christians, we may have lost some of that, that wonder that we once had. But that Nehemiah displays that in a pretty courageous way, in a pretty cool way. And that to overcome our thin faith or our faith that doesn't necessarily have wonder, we may follow in, in three aspects that Nehemiah displays. And those three being, uh, or the first being, that Nehemiah allows his heart to be broken. He allows his heart to be moved by something. That word movement was the first aspect. He's moved over the destruction of Jerusalem. The second meaning that Nehemiah responds to that movement by doing kingdom work, by doing the critical work of the kingdom, prayer and fasting. He doesn't get his hands busy. He doesn't immediately start to do stuff or make check, checklists or any of those things, but he does the hard work of the kingdom by prayer and fasting. And then the third is that Nehemiah has this great and deep sense of awe in the Lord, that he doesn't let fear drive him, but that he has this reverence, this fearful reverence in the Lord and this awe in the Lord, and that it's those three aspects that help to give Nehemiah this wonder. It was a pretty cool, pretty cool message last week. We're going to um, kind of continue on with that this week, but be looking at chapter 2 in a little bit of different light. When we read Nehemiah, I think a lot of times we look for these uh, spiritual metaphors, we look for different allegories to try to make it relevant to us, so we talk about rebuilding our spiritual walls, our personal spiritual walls, we draw that metaphor. Sometimes we talk about needing to set our community on a new foundation, speaking of our community here. We would make, maybe make that allegory. Sometimes I've been a part of a church where um, you load up the book of Nehemiah and you dive right into the building campaign and you get after it, talking about, hey, we need more space. Nehemiah built a church, so why don't we build a new church? Um, none of those things are inherently bad, but this morning we're not going to talk about any of those things. I was trying to figure out how, how are we going to look at chapter 2. When I was studying this um, chapter, what, what does this even mean to me? How am I going to look at this? And it kind of began to come apparent to me that maybe we just read it as a history. Maybe we read it as a story that actually happened. This guy Nehemiah actually lived and did some pretty cool stuff. Maybe I should read it in the way where I emulate what Nehemiah does really well. That I take some of that truth out of, well, how did he live his life? What did he do well? And, and how is that going to affect me? How is that going to move me in some way? And so this morning, we're going to look at Nehemiah in that fashion. We're going to study it uh, and learn from history which is kind of cool. And so, although it may be a little unorthodox, 
we're going to look at Nehemiah through the way that he speaks, because I think Nehemiah speaks real powerfully. I think he uses words really, really well. And so that's going to be the lens that we look through this morning. Before we do that, I want to, I want to just jump in to words, this idea of words a little bit. I've been thinking about it a lot over the course of the last couple weeks. I think the way that we view language, the, we, the way that we view our words, is often in tension with how we feel. We kind of speak out of both sides of our mouth a little bit. Okay, nobody in last service got that either. That's a pun. It's a funny joke. Yeah, wow. I, I thought it was brilliant, but maybe it wasn't. I'll rework that a little bit. Um, but no, so, so the way that we speak is often in tension with the way that we feel or the way that we view these words. So we say things like, well, actions speak louder than words. But often we complain about being a people that doesn't move to action. We see this a lot in the church context. We say, well, actions speak louder than words, but a lot of times we have these deep conversations about us as a people not really doing anything, being pretty actionless, kind of setting up shop right here and not really moving outside of this building. So that's one place where we may see that tension. Another one, and we've all said this before in our lives, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt us. Has anybody said that before? That is a load of crap. <laughs> words hurt. Words have the capacity to, to wound somebody deeply. Words really are powerful. So we say that, but then we've all dealt with that at some level. Has anybody been really hurt by words, carried the baggage of something, something that was said to them? Could be 10 years ago, 15 years ago, yeah. Words are, words are powerful. Even in the church context, we try to maintain that the sermon isn't the most important thing we do. Nobody wants to say it. It's kind of the elephant in the corner. We say it's about the values. We say it's about being on mission. We say it's about the, commu the community or the relationships that we have. But if we were really honest, we go to churches, to the, to the churches where we're drawn in by the speaker. The man or woman who sits up here on Sunday morning, if they can deliver a good message and if we're captivated by that, that's generally where we set up shop. It's the church we go to. I think it's usually what drives us to churches. It's what keeps us at churches. It's what moves us to churches or to find new churches. If the speaker doesn't have enough meat in their sermon or they don't use enough Greek words or whatever, you know, those are the things that we tend to say, well, maybe it's time for me to look for a new place. Now that, again, that's not necessarily bad, but I think we at least just need to be honest with it and say, yeah, words are important. Sermons are important. What we talk about is important. We use these cliches saying that words are secondary to other things, that they're not important at all, but they really, really are when we begin to think about it. The truth is, is it's incredibly important. It's how we communicate with one another. It's how we think. It's how we're known, it's how we know other people is through words, through being able to communicate. I think it's easy, and I would even go as far to say that it's really easy, to become individually consumed with having ourselves be heard. To have that be a consumption of ourselves where our whole life begins to be oriented towards having our perspective heard or being heard out by somebody. It's that reason why when you're in a conversation with somebody and there's that natural lull, that there's that immediate response to, oh my gosh, I've got to say something right now. What can I say? I want to be heard. How many people have uh, been in an argument before or what my wife and I call a uh, gentle disagreement, something along those lines, 
where somebody is talking and you have effectively shut them out of your mind because you are beginning to formulate your rebuttal right away. You are no longer listening to them, but you're beginning to formulate exactly what you're going to say. Anybody been there before? Yeah. How about you go out to dinner with somebody new or a new couple, and you get back in the car, and you think to yourself, or you have the conversation with your spouse, whoever you're out with, is, wow, that person talked a lot. You have that couple that maybe they consumed the entire conversation. Anybody been there? Keep your hands raised if you actually are that couple, or you are that person. Anybody? No, no. One person admitted it in the last service. Yeah, words are important. They can be consuming. Twitter and Facebook, again, not inherently bad things in of themselves, but they're these new platforms that allow us to be heard by potentially millions of people. And I think we're drawn to that. I think that's enticing to us. There's no getting around the fact that words are important, that they're deeply, deeply meaningful in our lives. Think about some of the great speeches from people like Martin Luther King Jr., or even the Gettysburg Address. I remember re having to remember or memorize that when I was in third grade or fourth grade, whatever grade that is, but you, you memorize that because it's important. Those things have shaped our collective conscious. Those things are critically important to who we are as Americans. So words can be beautiful. They can, they can produce great, beautiful, good things. Words can also be incredibly destructive, though. I remember a story that um, I was uh, just entering into my senior year. It was like October of my senior year. And Kevin, pre-senior year, was very different than Kevin is now. And so um, oh, that's a very nice way of saying it. Well, I, I had gone to a Young Life camp that summer and had this radical, um, very dramatic typical high school conversion experience um, at, a, at a Young Life camp. Very powerful in my life. And, and really, my life did do kind of a 180 over the course of a, a day or a night. It, it was pretty powerful. So anyways, I come into my senior year um, desperately wanting to be somebody different, wanting to live for Jesus, wanting to figure out how do I make amends with all the stuff that I've done in the past? How do I kind of reorient my life to be somebody new, to be a new creation in the Lord. And so I was uh, in a mythology class with a teacher that I had had previous, a couple years earlier, I think during my sophomore year, I had him for an English class. And before that conversion experience, I generally butted heads with authority figures. This guy being a teacher obviously kind of assumes that authority figure nature. And so we butted heads, and now I'm in his class, but I'm very different than I was when I was a sophomore in high school. And we were talking about Greek gods, as that's what you do in a mythology class. And he is beginning to kind of go on this diatribe about how the Greek gods are hubris, kind of this, uh, this idea of having extreme arrogance. And he proceeded to single me out in the class and make, draw the parallel that I would be similar to a Greek god because I had extreme arrogance. Now, in this guy's defense, he probably had the right to say that because he was going on information from two years ago where I was that way. And I probably needed to be called out at that time in my life. But after having just given my life to the Lord and desperately trying to be somebody different, those words crushed me. 
I've carried that baggage now for 10 years. Now, this isn't something that's huge in my life. It's more of an illustration, but it is words that I remember. I can remember the situation very clearly. So just like words can be incredibly powerful and good, produce beautiful things, words can be very destructive as well. Whether good or bad, it's almost as if because we've been given words, because we've been given this way to communicate, we think it's our right to communicate in any way that we want to, with as many words as we want to, whenever we want to. We almost think it's our right to do whatever we want to with our words, with the way that we communicate. Yet scripture seems to paint a different picture. The book of James spends a decent portion, or James spends a decent portion of his book talking and warning about the tongue, saying this is dangerous territory, folks. The tongue can be, it, it can be very destructive. He's, he gives special attention to that, which I think is interesting. There are many different Proverbs that talk about our need to kind of guard our tongue. One, Proverbs 18.21 says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Jesus addresses this as well. In Matthew 12.37, he says, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's a pretty powerful statement. So here's the point. Words are important. I think they're more powerful than what we believe they are. Let's remember that God created the earth by speaking. He spoke the cosmos into existence. So how we speak and what we say is important. We can be honest with ourselves and say, I know that I, I want to be about action or we want to be a people that's about action and going and doing and living out the gospel, but let's at least acknowledge that words are important, that they shape who we are, that they shape our character at some level. What we say is critically important. So what does this have to do with Nehemiah? Well, I think Nehemiah shows an incredible capacity to, to communicate in a healthy way. I think it's one of the reasons why we're drawn to Nehemiah is because of the way he speaks, because of the way that he uses words. And so the, my hope is, is that as we read chapter 2 here in a second, we'll begin to pick some of this stuff out. It will lead us into a deeper maturity. So turn to Nehemiah 2, and I'll begin reading this. And this is kind of a long passage. It's up on the screens, too if you want to look up there. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. The wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you were not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb, lies desolate, and its gates have been consumed by fire. Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given 
me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I'll go. And the king granted them to me because of the good hand of God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. When Symbalat the Huronite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuse, the refuse gate, inspecting the, wells, the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, and there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we're in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable on me and also the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to good work. But when Symbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build and you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Here's a, a little map that we'll put up here that kind of gives you an idea of what his journey looked like, an idea of what the rebuilding the walls would have been. So here are some questions to think about as we just read this passage. How many references did you guys hear that says, and then I said... This is Nehemiah writing in the first person. There seems to be real special attention to this dialogue, almost as Nehemiah really wants us to hear exactly what he said. Six different times in that passage, there's this explicit, and then I said statement. Did you catch the times where Nehemiah chooses not to speak? Again, special attention to this time where he's walking around inspecting the walls for three days, and he chooses not to tell anyone what he's doing. Or did you notice the things that he does say and how he says them in that final call to the Jews? I think Nehemiah does four things really well. I think we can grab kind of four pieces of truth from the way that he speaks, the way that he uses his words. The first being that he speaks honestly and transparently. When speaking to the king, uh, oftentimes kings... Would make, um, would make a law that it would be illegal for their people to be sad in front of them. They thought, well, I'm the king. How could anybody be sad in my presence? And so it's illegal to be sad in my presence. And so Nehemiah walks into this situation knowing this, and yet he's honest. 
the king calls him out and says, why are you sad? You've never been sad in my presence before. And he speaks this very honest and transparent statement about the walls of Jerusalem and how he's moved by that, how he's been broken by that. So how do we speak honestly? Do we speak transparently? I think oftentimes we don't. I think a lot of times we fake our responses to people. How many times am I asked during my day how I'm doing and I just give the rote answer, oh, I'm doing great? When maybe I'm not. Maybe it's been a tough day. Maybe it's been a tough week. Maybe it's been a tough year. Somebody asked me, but it's just easier to say, I don't want to get into it, so I'm just, I'll be a little dishonest here. It's fine. How about the time where you're, you're in one of those gentle disagreements with a spouse and then you're showing up to somebody's house for dinner and you get into this disagreement in the car ride? We've all been here before. It's, it's the most awkward, ridiculous thing where you get into this long conversation and you have to sit out in front of their house for 10 minutes to you know, kind of finalize it and then you walk in and everybody, hey, you know, we're here, it's great. You know? People are crying in the car and then you come in and it's kind of that, we, we just are fearful to be transparent. We're afraid to be honest. I think that's the reason. I think that's what leads us to this, this idea that we're not always transparent is fear. The scripture says that Nehemiah was fearful. He was immediately afraid, and yet he trusted in the Lord. His confidence was in the Lord, and he said, I can, I can be honest. We've given fear a foothold to dictate our honesty and transparency. We're fearful that maybe if we're honest, people will have a different image of us. We're fearful that if we're honest, maybe they won't see us as we want to be seen. Maybe they'll question who we are. Maybe we won't look like we have it all together. And so we allow fear to dictate our honesty oftentimes. The scripture says that Nehemiah was afraid, but his confidence was in the Lord. And I think he reached the point where he said, I'm more worried about being honest to myself. I'm more worried about being honest before the Lord than I am how other people view me. That's an incredible place to reach in maturity. So do we really want to be known as disingenuous people? Or maybe at worst, as dishonest people? Or do we want to be known as people that have a radical honesty and transparency? A people that don't let fear dictate those things. The second thing that Nehemiah does really well is he knows when not to speak. Maybe you say it this way, that he measures his words really well. Verse 16, as he's walking around the outside of the walls, it says that he makes this special attention not to tell anybody what he's doing. He doesn't tell the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest of what he was doing for three days. How would this have looked different had he shown up at the walls and just said, hey, boys, I'm home, here we are, let's get cracking. I have a story, a good friend of mine was in Seattle where he lives, and it was after a Mariners game, and the traveling team had come in, there was this um, somewhat famous baseball player that uh, was in town playing the Mariners, and, and they happened to be at the same dance club <laughs> later that night. And so my buddy was sitting at the bar, and this guy walks in after the game, kind of makes his way up to the bar where the bartender is, and, and actually comes in right next to my friend, and there's another person here who is doesn't really matter for the story. I'm just giving you some context here. <laughs> Walks in, and the, and the guy leans over the table and kind of you know, pulls the bartender a little bit closer, and he says, 
tell them I've arrived. <laughs> I just think that's ridiculous. I mean, talk about the pinnacle of arrogance. Tell them I've arrived. What would have happened if Nehemiah had done that? Shows up at the gates and just said, hey, tell them I've arrived. I think Nehemiah measures his words because he takes that time to pray. I think he takes three days to make sure that this is exactly what he's called to do. I think he measures his words because he wants to make sure that he has a plan in place, that he's not just calling people into something he has no idea about. But he shows up and he says, hey, I, I feel moved by the Lord, but I want to make sure I'm going to do some inspection. I'm going to set a plan. I want to be very prayerful about this. I don't want to just start spouting off stuff. He measures his words really well. Have we ever had maybe that moment where you've said something that you immediately want to grab back? It comes out of your mouth and you want to just reach out and grab it and put it back in your pocket. That same summer, I was at camp. I had an interaction where a couple of my friends and I were standing around and uh, we were meeting and talking with some of the lady folk. They were from the same area, uh, actually from Medical Lake. And we were standing there. There was a couple of us, and there was um, a couple of these gals from Medical Lake High School. Um, one of them that was kind of carrying the conversation. And as we're asking, uh, you know, just quite, what do you do? What grade are you in? So on and so forth. She says her name, and she has this very um, kind of recognizable last name. And it's one of those moments where you, you hear it, and you kind of immediately do in the mental gymnastics to think, well, how do I know that name? I know I've never met you. But I know that name. I've heard it somewhere. And it was evident that the buddies that I was standing with were kind of thinking the same thing. You know, when you, when you look at somebody, you know they're thinking about something, and they kind of have one of those weird looks on their faces. And it, it, we were all, like, doing this. And so she's continuing to talk, and we're kind of asking those questions but not really listening to what she's saying because we're trying to figure out, how do we know this, this girl's last name? And, it, like, when that light bulb goes on, my buddy who I was standing next to, he, he does one of these. He snaps and points right at her and says, screams out her last name. Scream, maybe not scream, but says her last name very loudly. Points right at her and says, that's the guy who shot his wife. Three years earlier, her dad had been convicted of killing and murdering his wife. And it was all across the, new paper, the newspapers in Spokane, and that's where that name was recognizable. Now, he didn't mean anything with that. It was one of those moments where you just say something and immediately you want to grab it and say, no, not the right thing to say. And she, with a very kind of blank stare, looked at us and said, that's mom and dad and we don't talk about that. One of those moments where words really can destroy somebody. One of those moments where you really wish you could have measured your words a little bit better. Measuring is about control. Measuring is about controlling the things that we say, not just saying whatever comes to mind, but having the ability to control what comes out of our mouths. Nehemiah displays a disciplined control and not immediately speaking the things that he thinks, not even immediately speaking the call that God has placed on his heart. And in the same way, I think measuring our words is about controlling what comes out of our mouths. And I'm going to take some liberty here for one moment, because this isn't necessarily in this scripture, but I think we need to measure our words with others as well. I don't think you can verbally abuse somebody 
or verbally destroy somebody and then just say, oh, well, I'm a verbal processor. I don't think you can destroy somebody with your words and say, oh, well, I was just angry and it was in the heat of the moment. I think that's really cheap. I think it's really Bush League. And I think as followers of Christ, we need to understand that. We need to recognize that we can't just pass those things off because we verbally process or because we're angry. Because words do hurt and words are powerful. The scripture in Proverbs also says, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. I'm convinced that living as a part of the kingdom means that we measure our words. So the third thing that Nehemiah does really well is he speaks few but impassioned words. His call to the Jews, it's actually rather understated. When you think about what he says in verse 17, that little call there where he says, come on guys, we're going to rebuild the walls for what they were going to undertake, it's a very understated rallying cry. We seem to put a premium on using many words in our culture. Even with sermons, when we think about it, if the sermon isn't at least 30 minutes, then the guide probably didn't have enough to say. We kind of think that way. Or if something isn't incredibly complex, then that person may not be all that smart. There's this premium on using a lot of words, thinking that that is somehow equates to importance. And yet Nehemiah doesn't really matter to Nehemiah. You see, I think, I think this idea of using few but impassioned words is, is about trust, actually. It's about trust that God will, in fact, show up and do what he says he's going to do. It's not having that rest on us, that pressure be on us to say, well, I've got to say the right things in the right context with the right inflections. No, it's about trusting God, trusting God to do what he says that he's going to do. Parker Palmer, this, uh, he's a leadership guru guy, he writes about something called functional atheism, which functional atheism is this idea that we all believe in God, but at the end of the day, we feel the pressure that if anything is going to happen, it ultimately rests on us. So I believe, I believe that God says he is uh, who he says he is. I think he's going to do this stuff, but at the end of the day, it probably rests on me to get it done. I think we all probably struggle with that at some level. And this speaks to that. I believe God will do powerful things, but I need to make sure that what I say is perfect. I need to make sure that the words that come out of my mouth are beautiful. I need to make sure that I throw in enough Greek to impress people. But ultimately, it's a trust issue. Nehemiah's call to the Jews is simple. It's 40 words long, and it's impassioned. And I think people are moved by great leaders and great character. And I think that's why people are moved by Nehemiah. I think that's why people join in and help rebuild the walls. Not because of this wonderful uh, call that he lays out, but because of his character. I think they liked him more for who he was than what he said. Even Jesus at some level is that way. Think about all the times that Jesus teaches. Most of them are probably five to ten minutes long. I mean, they're not long. His teachings are not long. They're quite simple, actually, yet they're deeply profound. Because of Nehemiah's trust in the Lord, he didn't need long explanations. 
He didn't need to give its theological relevance. I think Nehemiah just trusted that God would bring the right people. And I think Nehemiah probably would have rebuilt the wall even had God not brought the right people. I think he was so convicted and so moved that if God didn't bring people, he would have started in on it anyways. The scripture says, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And I think Nehemiah's heart was deeply filled with a trust in the Lord. And so what came out was a simple invitation to people. So do we trust in the Lord enough to do his work? To not need to rely on our words, not need to rely on our will to make things happen. Do we trust in the Lord enough for him to do what he says he will do? The fourth thing that Nehemiah does, and you're probably saying, well, Kevin, yeah, this is great. Words are important, but what about action? Don't we have to be action-oriented? I would say absolutely. And that's the fourth thing that Nehemiah does really well. His words match his actions. He did what he said he was going to do. He does the very things he says. He travels the 800 miles to Jerusalem. He gets the necessary materials. He inspects the walls. He calls people into the mission with him, and then he does it. So not only does he use the right words and measure words at different times, speaks few and impassioned words, but then he actually does what he's going to say what he is going to do. He does it. He makes it happen. I think people are drawn to Jesus and will be drawn to Jesus because of our words. But I think they'll know that Jesus is real when our actions match our words. How Nehemiah spoke his honest and simplistic speech, the times that he did speak, the times he chose not to speak, the reality that his actions matched the very things that he says, it makes Nehemiah who he is. It makes him uh, such that we're drawn to him, such that we want to study this book. I think those are elements of why we look at him as an Old Testament hero. Because the reality is, is we don't speak all that well. When we do, it's often about ourselves or it's useless gossip, or it's idle words. We're often known for our propensity to speak more than we are to listen as Christians. And yet we continue to try to downplay the importance of words, saying, well, I didn't really mean what I said there. But you did, because it came out. And out of the heart, the mouth speaks. I think that's critically important to remember. Words are too powerful to believe that. Words have the ability to create beauty, to create good, but they also have the ability to destroy in an instant. So words are critically, critically important. God gave us the ability to talk, but he also gave us the ability to manage, to measure, and to use our words for good and beautiful things, just as Nehemiah displays. Let me end with this. Jesus says, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is of evil. Matthew 5, 37. This instruction is often interpreted to mean uh, something along the lines of oaths, that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we don't necessarily need to make these grand statements of, well, I swear on God, because our character should be enough for that. So we can use yes, yes, and no, no. We don't need these grand statements. But could it also be taken to mean that our character is what we need to focus on? Not long, detailed explanations, not presenting dishonest, 
images, not filling the air with useless words. You see, I think this scripture, I think what Jesus says here may be a broader statement that our language and our words need to be simple and honest. That we can trust in the Lord for what he's going to do and so we can just be simple and honest in the way that we talk. We can use and refocus our words for good, for beauty. My hope is that our church would be known for speaking simply, for speaking honestly. I hope that we can embody Nehemiah's transparent speech. We can embody his ability to measure his words. We can speak few and impassioned words when we do speak about the gospel. That our actions would actually align with the things that we say. I'm confident that if we do that, that again, people will be drawn to Jesus. They'll be drawn by our words. But I think that they'll know he's real when our actions match those words, when we say what we actually do and we do what we say. Let me pray. Lord, have mercy on us. As we continue to try to figure out what it means to follow you, we know that we need to grow, we know that we need to mature, and we ask that you would continue to have mercy, and we're so thankful for your grace, Lord. God, be with us as we move from here today. Help us to speak well. Help us to speak in a way that honors you, that creates beauty. Lord, and we do pray uh, that you would make known to us those people that we've wounded in the past with our words, that you would give us the strength to seek reconciliation. And so if there are those people, Lord, help us to move towards them and ask for forgiveness. Lord, and we pray that people would be drawn because of what we say and how we say it, but that they would know that you are real because of what we do because we actually do what we say we will. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.